Francis Junius was a biblical scholar and theologian of the 16th century, and God used the opening verses of John to change him forever. Matthew Henry told the story. Junius says that he observes such a divinity in the argument, such an authority and majesty of style, that his flesh trembled. And he was struck with such amazement that for a whole day he, could, he scarcely knew where he was or what he did. And thence he dates the beginning of his being religious. The power of these verses changed Junius. And I'm wondering if the power, the same power that changed Junius will change you or has changed you. In chapter 1, John introduces essential doctrines or teachings, not only for the rest of John, but for the entire Christian faith. Last week, I mentioned a certain heretic named Serinthus, who taught that Jesus was a man coming from Joseph and Mary by natural birth. His birth wasn't supernatural, and his suffering, death, and resurrection were not as God's anointed one, but as a simple man, mere man. If Jesus is just a man, would anything change about our faith, about our lives? John thought so. And people are still calling the deity of Jesus Christ into question today. Former pastor Rob Bell is an author and speaker and was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2011's most influential people. One Amazon book description says Bell is a vibrant voice for a new generation of Christians. In 2005, he published a book entitled Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith. That was the title. And it was very, very successful. Bell has a large following. In Velvet Elvis, Bell writes that Christianity is like a trampoline. Uh, with movable springs of doctrine that flex in order to create flexibility or space for rethinking central Christian doctrines. He opposes the view that Christianity is a rigid brick wall of stacked doctrines and that if you lose one brick of doctrine, the whole wall caves in. And the brick that Bell chooses as an illustration is the virgin birth. He believes Christianity would remain even if the virgin birth was disproven. He writes this, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in? He continues, what if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Or does the whole thing fall apart? Then he writes, if the whole faith falls apart, when we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Now, Bell says in the book that he affirms the historic position of the Christian faith, including the virgin birth, but his point is that Christianity survives without 
central doctrines like the divinity of Jesus. When you challenge the divinity of Jesus, you challenge all of Christianity. And it may not surprise you that Bell now rejects the reality of eternal hell and believes God blesses homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle. My point is this. The Bible says, what the Bible says about Jesus is extremely important and relevant to our lives and the choices that we make. Bad teaching about Jesus has extreme consequences. Everything changes if Jesus is just a man. Let's dig into the Word. The Word is eternal. And you can keep your Bibles open. If you're not there already, go to John 1. We're going to be looking at the text a lot. The Word is eternal. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, or Logos. Logos is overflowing with meaning. The Jews in the first century would have understood uh, Logos. Back then, Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament called Targums were used to explain the sacred text in the synagogue. And the phrase, Word of God, occurred within them hundreds of times and referred indirectly to God's name. So the Jews of the first century would have heard Word of God a whole lot in their worship services. The Jews were taught that the Word of God was equivalent with God Himself. So when John uses Logos, he's using something that was familiar with, uh, with uh, the Jews, and it had divine meaning. Well, the Greeks of the first century would also have been familiar with the term Logos as an impersonal rationality or divine reason or wisdom. So historically, we have Jews and Greeks both uh, understanding this term logos. There was a background for it. The Greek word logos is rational speech, a declaration, a statement, a message. And John is saying that the logos is eternal. It always was. And if you keep reading in the first chapter of John and the rest of the book, you'll see that John is talking about Jesus Christ. In verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. In other words, God has revealed himself. He's declared himself through the word, his son, Jesus Christ. One commentator said, he has made known God's mind to us as a man's word or speech makes known his thoughts. The Word is God's self-expression, the revelation of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. John is telling us that the Word or self-expression of God is eternal. It always was. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, which sounds like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice John didn't say, in the beginning, the Word became. In the beginning, the Word came into being. He didn't say that, but rather, the Word was. The Word didn't come into existence. He was there before the beginning. John says it again in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Before the beginning, before anything was made, before the universe the Word was. In the upper room with His disciples, Jesus prayed, Father, 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before God said, let there be light, the word was. And the word was glorious and the word shared glory with God. He was there in full glory before anything was made. In Hebrews 1.10, God says of his own son, Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, what difference does it make whether Jesus is the eternal word of God or not? This is why teachers like Serinthus and like Rob Bell are very sneaky and need to be watched out for. They're very dangerous. If Jesus is not the eternal word of God, and if he's simply a man who taught good principles, then God has not revealed himself to us. He has not come to us. He has not provided us with a mediator or a go-between. Therefore, we have no perfect righteousness, no meaningful cross, no hope of resurrection, no Savior, and we are still lost and trapped in our sins and life of darkness. Everything hinges on the divinity of Jesus Christ. Truth be told, Christ is the eternal word of God. God did reveal himself to us. He did come to us in the flesh. We can know him through uh, a mediator. We can have perfect righteousness through faith in Christ. We have a meaningful cross. We have a resurrection. We have a savior and we have our greatest hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ who freed us from the darkness to live in the light. That reality, that truth then compels us to live in affectionate obedience and allegiance to Christ. When we relax the true identity of Jesus, we relax the standard of holiness. John's next line reveals even more. And the word was with God. The word is distinct from God and relational. Now, small words, little small words can have huge meanings. Um, John uses was, a simple word, was, three times in verse one to emphasize something that he wants you to, to see. He was. He was. He is eternal. Simple, but loaded with meaning. He always existed. Then he uses the preposition with to show two important things. One, the word is distinct from God. And two, the word relates to God. If you go with your friend to the movies, that means you both go together to the movies. If you say a certain wine uh, goes with a particular meat, you mean that the wine complements the meal. They work together, and it's more flavorful. You know, husbands, if you're, if you're like, hey, honey, uh, does, does my shirt go with these pants? Do they complement each other? Does this work together? All right? And some of you need to ask your wives that. <laughs> I'm just being honest. No, all right. The word was with God distinct from God and relating to God. And this fits with our view of the Trinity. Question 25 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, since there is but one only divine essence, one God, why speak of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? What's up with that? One and three. Can't make it work. 
Well, that's a good question. Here's the answer that it gives. Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Our God is one. So that makes us monotheists. One God. Yet, our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we worship three distinct persons of the one true God. The word is distinct and interacts with God. Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father and Son share glory. They share relationship. They enjoy each other in perfect relationship. If you look at 1 Peter 1.20, it'll say, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And that little word, foreknown, is packed with meaning. Intimate relationship, intimate fellowship. He was not only known beforehand, but there was fellowship there. It's known as in intimacy and relationship. The Father and Son relate to each other in love. In John 17, 24, Jesus affectionately says to his Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me. Our culture is so confused about marriage. We're, we, we are a mess. God designed marriage to communicate something about himself. Himself. It's not primarily about us. It's communicating something about the nature of God. Unity amidst diversity. Um, so profoundly, in the profound sense, in the deepest sense, marriage is, a, is about Christians, the church, and their union with Jesus Christ. I get that from Ephesians 5. Marriage is two different people, a man and a woman, becoming one, distinct, yet united. This is a mystery, Paul says. This is intimacy. And in Ephesians 5.31, Paul writes this, the two shall become one flesh. Well, how does that work? This is a mystery. But it's a great, beautiful mystery. Marriage reflects God because God is a triune God. Three. Three distinct persons, yet one God. The Word, the eternal Word, is part of that communion, that relationship, joyful relationship in the midst of unity. And this is important because the moment that you come to Christ and trust in Him, you are joining into a fellowship with the eternal God. I want Christ. I want to be part of that relationship. You have relationship through Christ with each person of the Trinity. You are in relationship with the Father who adores you, with the brother, a savior, a king who intercedes for you. You are given a helper, a counselor who is in you, the Holy Spirit who guides you in the truth, convicts you of sin, and helps you to obey. Through Christ, we are brought into communion, into relationship, into fellowship with the Trinity. Not only is the word distinct from God and relational with God, the word is God. The word contains the fullness of deity in his person. All right, the character and substance of God is the character and substance of the word. In some ways, Jesus is, um, even today, culturally trendy. 
You can buy t-shirts of Jesus. You, you see Jesus everywhere. But he's not trendy because he's God. Um, the trendy Jesus lacks sovereignty and is reduced to some moral guy or some guru or some revolutionary, but not God. Well, Jesus is the eternal word. He's distinct from God, yet fully God. And all that God deserves, the word deserves. He deserves our worship. He deserves our affection. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our love and allegiance. The logos, or word, is God's self-revelation. The logos is what God is like. Philippians 2.6 says Jesus was in the form of God. In other words, Jesus has the nature of God. Right after saying Jesus is preeminent in Colossians 1.18, Paul adds in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if you take a glass and you take a drink and you pour your drink into the glass, the glass is not empty, it's full. It has something in it. The word is full with the character and nature of God. On Thursday, a bunch of guys from Jerusalem came. Some of you were there and helped us unload our heavy furniture into, uh, into our house. And uh, I think it took us less than 40 minutes. I mean, it was, it was great. And I guess it helps to have someone who is 240 pounds in solid muscle. Uh, some of the other guys weren't quite that, but they, you know, they were working hard. They were working hard. They just didn't look as good, you know? So we're, we're moved in, we're living in our house, and Paul says something very interesting. The fullness of deity lives in Jesus Christ. Moved in, that's who he is, it's the fullness of it dwells, deity dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. It resides in him. In other words, he is God. Robertson calls this a full and flat statement of the divinity of Christ. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says again, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness of God dwells in a body, the person of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the Father is full of deity. The Holy Spirit is full of deity. Each distinct from one another, yet one God. This is almost unbelievable. Almost. But it's true. Well, the Greek of verse 1 is not without debate. The New World Translation is the version used by Jehovah's Witnesses, and it translates verse 1 like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, which totally changes the meaning of the, the uh, verse. They believe Jesus is not the Almighty God in the flesh, but rather Michael the archangel who became human. They would say Jehovah is the Almighty God, but Jesus is just a lesser God. Well, the Greek in and of itself of the verse, along with the context of the entire passage that we're looking at, and the context of the entire Bible, and the logic of the passage, one, three, or chapter 1, okay, all point to the historic Christian interpretation of verse 1. The Word is the only true God. Jesus is more 
than a good example to follow. He is God. He deserves your worship. He deserves your affection. And because He is God, He can't fail you. He can't fail you. He identifies with you because He is fully human, but He transcends you in sovereignty, is more powerful than you because He is fully God. And so anything that you're wrestling with and dealing with, you can take directly to Christ because not only does he identify with you as a man, but he also can handle what you're bringing to him as God. The word is God and therefore transcendent. He is supreme, yet he is also personal, close. The word is eternally personal and male. Look at verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. The word is personal, he, and the word is male, he. Years ago, I was at a wedding where God was referred to as mother during a prayer. I had a very hard time hearing that. Dr. Rita Haltman Finger, a Maritai professor of New Testament from Messiah College, addressed the students of Eastern Mennonite University in a chapel service in March of last year. Her message was entitled, Worshiping God as Mother. In her message, Dr. Finger did what I would call creative things with the biblical text, what I believe to be blasphemous things. She believes we should recognize God as mother and worship God as such. She uses biblical figures of speech to misinterpret the true identity of God. God is not female, Now, it is true that when you read some of the biblical text, biblical figures of speech are feminine in use. You'll see that. The wings of a mother bird or something like that. And they come out and you read and you're like, well, that that sounds feminine. But God did that to communicate certain principles or characteristics about himself, not to change his nature or identity, God as Father and Son is all throughout the Scripture. Even the Spirit is referred to as He in Scripture. So it is, not, it is only right for us then to worship God as He actually is and how He wants us to worship Him in His true identity as He has revealed Himself to us. The Word is eternal. The Word is distinct from God, yet fully God, relational and masculine and the powerful Creator behind the universe. The Word created all things. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You could say, all things came into being through Him. All that creation is, from the overwhelming views of galaxies in the expanses of the universe to the fascinating subatomic negative charge of electrons, from the vast mountain ranges of the Rockies to the seemingly endless grasslands of sub-Saharan Africa, all was created by the Word. Without Jesus Christ, we just don't have anything. Nothing fun without Jesus. Why is Friday night football under the lights such a thrill? Jesus Jesus. Why is New York strip steak or sushi or homemade bread, chicken corn soup so delicious? Jesus. Why does the quadratic formula work in algebra 
or Boyle's Law in physics or iambic pentameter in poetry. Jesus. Why do rhythm, melody, harmony complement each other? Jesus. Jesus made it all. All things were put into being by the word, not only for his glory, but for our enjoyment and wonder. The next time you're outside, the next time you're enjoying something, just think to yourself, Jesus made this possible. Now, I have to say, there are distortions and we misuse things. So what I'm talking about is the proper use of things, how God has created them to be used. When we use them and we get enjoyment, we say God has made this and it is good. When you distort that, then it messes the whole thing up. So we have to use it how God created it to be used. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through him. For by him all things were created, Paul says in Colossians 1.16. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and I love this, and for him. It's all made for him. Think about the immense power of the word of God compared to the power that you have. Have you ever been brushing your teeth and you squirted a little bit extra on the brush? And you're like, oh man, can you get that back in somehow? It's not going back in. I mean, you could be a driven, determined person. It's going back in. I am not wasting this because you might be like some people, they just hate waste. And so you're like, it's going back in. Look, there's room in the bottle. It just came from there, but you're not putting that back in. It's not going back in. Let's see what Jesus can do. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus willed the universe into existence. He wanted it there and so he made it happen. The Lord Jesus Christ wills whatever he wants. That is tremendous power. That is unparalleled power. That's, that's something we just, we're drawn to that, aren't we? Psalm 33, 6 is amazing. The psalmist sings, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Jesus made you. Jesus made you. The stamp of his power is on you. And through faith, the power of Jesus is put to work in your life for your good. To save and sanctify you. To redeem and renew you. To help and heal you. To guide and guard you. To protect and provide for you. To compel and compose for you. Do you want that power? Trust Christ. Ask him to give you his powerful grace. John told us in verse 4 that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word contains life. Do you want to live? I mean, do you really want to live? Because man goes to great lengths to continue living, even risking his own life so that others can continue to live the police force, the fire department, EMTs, paramedics, hospitals, even the armed forces are built upon the value of human life and the human desire to live. 
And each of these preserves physical life. The police force works to preserve physical life. Who can preserve the soul? In the eternal word was life. Not only physical life as the creator, but spiritual and eternal life given as grace through faith. Eternal life is in the person of Jesus. That life was the light of humanity. Look at John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Then John eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 John 1, 2, John writes that the life was made manifest. We could see it. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The life was made manifest. We could see it in the person of Jesus Christ. Then again in 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God shines the light of his glory, and this light is the light of men. The sun of our solar system sends light and heat to the earth, and in that light and heat is life. Life that gives life to the earth. All of God's attributes shine life. One study note said, against this background, Jesus as the light brings to this dark world true knowledge, moral purity, and the light that shows the very presence of God. Deep down, we all want to live. We all want to live. In fact, deep down, we yearn for eternal life and joy. There's something inside of you that craves to live forever. And so it is important for us to reflect upon what eternal life truly is. You've got the desire. Don't ignore that. Don't suppress that. Press in to understand what eternal life is and that the only possible way to grasp that life is through faith in Christ. This is why Sunday after Sunday we come here to rejoice in Christ crucified and risen, that he is alive. The Mannheim Central Barons, there's one thing I know. They like to win. And they do win. And I can't wait to watch them win August 30th against Warwick. You know why I coughed. You know why I coughed. Against Warwick. So this last point totally fits with Mannheim. All right? The word always shines and wins. Undefeated. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or understood it. We'll get to that in a little bit. Overcome it. The eternal word of God shined here and defeated the darkness. There are dark forces at work all around us. You've encountered them. I've encountered them. 
But more than the darkness is the power of the conquering light. To overcome, in verse 1, is one of two things. One, to comprehend something as in grasping with the mind. That's where you get the NIV translation, understood it. Okay? Or it can mean to overtake something or grasping by force. I kind of lean towards that, that interpretation. Verse 5 could be translated, the dark has not understood it. And this would make total sense because when Jesus came, he was not received by the world. He was not received by his own people. But in the clash of light and darkness, in the battle between light and darkness, the light always wins. It overcomes, it conquers, it wins. If you enter a dark room and you just hit the switch, what happens? Light wins, darkness loses. Light wins, darkness loses. I want you to think about that the next time you just do the menial task of flipping the switch, say, what's happening right now? Dark is losing, light is conquering. And then think of Jesus. It's also a spiritual reality. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is sovereign and supreme over darkness. And the light is sovereign and supreme over darkness. Never allow the darkness around you to overwhelm you. The evil. Don't. Don't let it overwhelm you because the light conquers. And if you're in the light and you trust in the light, you're you're victorious. Living for Jesus Christ by God's grace is a victorious lifestyle. Now, it doesn't always feel that way. We, We just get pounded sometimes, don't we? Sometimes the Christian life feels weak. It feels pathetic. It feels like we're getting trampled on, and we are but not to our destruction, to our final victory in grace. Jesus was the beautiful rose that they trampled on the ground, but he's no longer on the ground. His day of final bloom is coming. A message like this, it can be difficult to apply. Um, Not because it lacks application in our lives, but because, one, it's teaching you something about the reality of God rather than directly telling you something to do. And so we can struggle sometimes to see how this relates, how it applies. But two, there are billions of ways to apply it. <laughs> where do you start? This is so applicable to our lives. It, 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 I don't, you don't even know where to start. Here is what I would challenge you with to apply it to your life. First, try to grasp the immensity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Try to grasp the, the truth of the eternal word just from a doctrinal standpoint. Just try to understand what he is and what he has done. Meditate on him. Then allow the reality of his being, his identity, to inform how you live everyday life. So here, here's some examples of how I would see that play out. One principle about, about Jesus. Understand that Jesus is in control as God. Just try to get that. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He's in control. He is God. Then when a challenge arises throughout the week in your life, Apply that knowledge of his sovereignty directly to the situation that's coming to you, okay? So instead of complaining, this one hurts me, huge complainer, all right? Instead of complaining, rejoice that Jesus is in control. He's bigger than this. He's bigger than this, and I trust in him 
and I will rejoice in who he is. That's very practical. Very practical. Instead of worrying, I'm prone to worry. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know if this is going to fit. Trust that Jesus is in control. Is he in control of this or not? Do you actually believe it? Quit worrying. What's your problem? Get with the program, man. Trust in Christ like you tell the people to trust in Christ. You, uh, you know, I'm just frustrated at myself sometimes. Instead of growing angry, I'm prone to get angry about stuff. All right? Understand Jesus will bring sovereign justice. You get mad at something, you see an injustice, you just say, he's coming with fierce vengeance upon that and he will make it right so I can be happy. I can be happy. I don't have to do it. I'll just let it to my big brother who is mad about that, all right? And he'll take care of it. You know, just trust, just trust. The word is sovereign over every situation of our lives, whatever it is. If none of those hit you, understand the truth applied to what you're walking through. It works, it fits. You can trust him. He provides for you exactly what you need in each situation of life. The applications of these eternal truths, it takes work. You have to think about it. Uh, don't trust me to just give you exactly the, the application because it's too, we're too diverse. But in your own situation, remember the truth that we looked at this morning and say, it applies. I just have to work to see how. I got to believe that it does. Stuff will happen. So let's pray right now that the Holy Spirit would help us to see how relevant Jesus Christ is to our lives and our own situation and that he would give us the grace to apply it. That's what I'd like to pray for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your truth sometimes um, appears to us as hard to apply. And that's because we're weak and pathetic, and we need you, God, in your grace to come to us and to help us apply what we just read. Simply five verses with the power to change people's lives, and I pray that we can look so deeply into those words and grasp exactly what you're telling us, and then that by your Spirit, you would help us to apply these massive truths to each situation of our lives. Very practical, very um, rubber meets the road, God. Help us to, to do that. And it's only your Holy Spirit that can do that. And I pray for the person here today that might be like, I'm confused. Um, I don't know how any of this makes sense to any of my, the, the difficulties I'm going through. Well, God, I pray that you will help apply it to that person. Um, we're all broken, we're all bruised, and God, I, I pray that these truths transform us, that they will become very practical for us, very useful, that, God is, that, that the Word is God and eternal and that we can trust Him. Um, help us to see why that matters. Thank you, God, for these dear people at Jerusalem Church and for the visitors today. And I pray that they walk out of here challenged and encouraged and joyful because Jesus Christ is on his throne as the eternal word of God. Fully God, fully man, upholding the universe by the word of his power. In Christ's name we pray, amen.